This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As we have been reporting, Federal Auditor General Karen Hogan released twin reports on Ottawa's response to COVID-19. She found the government's rollout to be efficient, a finding I have some questions about. And she also gave us some dollar figures on the amounts of support payments like CERB that went to people who were not eligible to receive it. She pegs one figure at 4.6 billion dollars and says the government is not doing enough to recover that money and that's a criticism that the Trudeau government denies. She also says there's another 27.4 billion dollars that has to be investigated because the government did not manage the aid programs efficiently. And uh, she predicts it will likely fail to recover significant amounts in overpayments. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Auditor General Karen Hogan. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. It's great to be here. Okay. Well, first, let's talk about that $4.6 billion figure. And I gather that those are overpayments that have been confirmed. So what was it? People who were double dipping? Um, what did that money consist of? Um, so in this audit, we looked at um, six uh, programs that the government used to support the country uh, throughout the pandemic. Five of them were related to individuals, and one was the Canada Emergency Waves subsidy that supported businesses. Um, so we did found uh, that $4.6 billion were made to ineligible recipients. And a, a good chunk of that, and really the, the majority of it, relates to um, the really the start end of the pandemic when there was some confusion where individuals um, applied for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, both from a Service Canada outlet and the Canada Revenue Agency, and received more than one payment for a subsidy period. And, and every individual was only allowed to receive one payment per period. So those, those amounts, the government is in the process of notifying all of those individuals. But more concerning is we also estimated that at least $27.4 billion in payments, either to individuals or employers, need to be investigated further. And it's there where I believe the government really um, needs a more comprehensive and rigorous uh, post-payment audit plan um, to identify people and businesses that received money they weren't eligible to. Well, yeah, because there were rules. So first of all, I mean, just anecdotally, we heard stories about companies that applied for and got wage subsidies and those people that they were supposedly keeping employed, well, they weren't employed very long. Uh, well, actually, we looked at um, whether the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy was effective at meeting its goals um, and, and whether the, the funds were, were dispersed in an efficient way. And we found that it was hard to conclude if the wage subsidy had met its goals because of the lack of information that was gathered from employers at the time of application. So, for example, um, the, the, the subsidy was meant to maintain that employer-employee relationship with businesses, um, but the Canada Revenue Agency didn't gather social insurance numbers um, to be able to demonstrate that those people who were working when the pandemic started were still working throughout and, and, and now today. Um, so we were able to conclude on the effectiveness, but it's that lack of gathering of information at the beginning um, also to support revenue declines, which makes it critically important to have rigorous post-payment work to verify eligibility of businesses. But I do remember, uh, because I know businesses that applied, and for very good reasons, that the application process, it, it, it's not like it was, uh, I mean, it was pretty rigorous, uh, it, or it, it took time to fill out those applications. I mean, what was on them? Mm-hmm. It, it did take some time because 
um, businesses had to demonstrate that they had a revenue decline. Um, at, at the start, it was about 30%, but then it sort of had a different sliding scale as the pandemic continued to evolve. Um, compared to the same month or the same four-week period the year before. Um, but the government didn't ask for proof of revenue in that same period the year before. And that's what you really need now to be able to demonstrate that businesses were eligible um, because that information wasn't collected. And, and as I would imagine most listeners know, when you send in your tax return, either your personal or your business tax return, it's on a calendar year. It's not really divvied up by month. Um, so you need to do a lot more work and reach out to businesses to find out if they were really eligible for the subsidies they applied to. Hmm. And uh, uh, so do you think, I mean, there's been a lot of talk kind of differentiating between uh, people who made honest mistakes and and should the government go after them and, and people who kind of gamed the system. So in terms of businesses, uh, do you make that kind of differentiation? Um, so again, uh, because there was very little information available at the Canada Revenue Agency as we were doing this audit, we turned to GST returns that many of the monthly um, GST filers, businesses would have to submit to the Canada Revenue Agency to see if those GST returns confirmed a decline in revenue. And that's where we've identified um, payments included in that $27.4 billion is really a little over $15 billion of, in, of businesses that need to be followed up further. It's because it didn't appear from the GST returns that they met those eligibility criteria. Um, so really the first key step that the government has to take is identifying all those um, businesses and people they think are ineligible. Um, and then under the current legislation, they would be required to reach out to everyone and, and try to collect amounts um, that they were ineligible for. But if they want to make a different decision when it comes to collection, one of forgiveness or compassion, that's something the government can do. Um, but they, they need to be clear with Canadians. But really the first step is who's ineligible, businesses and individuals, and then you make a decision about recovery. One of the criteria that the opposition's been using is they're saying, hey, some of these businesses, uh, they took the money from taxpayers and they gave their very wealthy executives big bonuses. Is, is, is that any kind of criteria that if you could afford to do that, you are ineligible? Or is that some kind of loophole in the whole thing? Well, so what you're talking about is really a question about design, and, and that was something the government would have done really early on in the program. Um, we did a couple of audits in early 2021 where we looked at the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and the wage subsidy and its design and rollout. And when it came to the wage subsidy program, uh, it really didn't differentiate based on size of the organization. It was just there to maintain that employer-employee relationship and allow businesses to uh, rebound as the economy economy reopened. Um, but the, the funds were meant to be used for wages. And so Canada Revenue Agency can really only assess whether the funds were used as intended if they carry out these post-payment audits that they need to do to not only confirm eligibility, but to make sure that the money was used as intended, which is why we recommend that they need to do a much more rigorous approach to their current plans for post-payment verification. Uh, there were some other kind of highlights, uh, some of them being that uh, I think, what, about uh, $2 million or or maybe more went to kids who were 15 and under? Oh, well, again, so when we looked at the individuals, we, um, we tried to identify all of the different eligibility criteria and whether based on 2019 and 2020 tax returns, people were eligible for the funds that they received. Um, and, and within that 27.4 billion, we flagged, um, you know, a good 12 million, uh, 12 billion related to individuals that require further follow-up. It goes back to the same issue of having limited information. Um, our audit, however, really tried to take a more beneficial output and, and give the benefit of the doubt to the taxpayer, but it really is up to the Canada Revenue Agency now to, to assess and follow up and gather more information to confirm eligibility. Yeah, because I remember this came up. It's come up uh, quite a few times, and there's always a hue and cry and said, why, why are you going to um, 
go after people who had an extra few thousand dollars and possibly who really needed it. But as you say, that's a political decision and it should be clear. Absolutely. You know, I I don't decide on policy or legislation. I hold the government to account for delivering its programs within the existing policies and legislations. And, And those are really clear that every taxpayer should be treated fairly. And if an amount has been received that they're not entitled to, it should be returned. Um, so that's the first step of identifying eligibility or not. Then the collection process uh, is one where the Canada Revenue Agency could take um, a people first, one of compassion, one of forgiveness. Um, but it's a political um, policy legislation decision, and they should just be clear. And what about the cost of recovering this money? I mean, is there a cost-benefit analysis that has to be done? Um, well, I think it's one that the government could carry out. Um, however, the first step is to really understand the universe of those ineligible. And, and in our view, they haven't done enough work there. They don't have a comprehensive enough plan in place to really be able to understand um, how many individuals and businesses are ineligible before making the decision on whether recovery um, is, is the way to go. Uh, they, they do have a time frame, however, under current legislation, you need to notify an individual unless um, there's been some intent to deceive or fraudulent behavior within 36 months of receiving receiving payments. And businesses, it's about 36 to 48 months. So uh, time is running out to sort of make that initial identification process. Okay, well, uh, let's hope they get on it. There is one thing from your assessment of the vaccine rollout. You said uh, you considered it to be efficient. And uh, I'm thinking back to the very beginning. And there was, uh, as far as I remember, a very big issue that the vaccines were not ordered early enough. There were very few vaccines at the end of 2020 when other countries were vaccinating and there was a big lag time. And I remember we all used to go through our world and data to see where we ranked and we were behind countries like Slovakia. Uh, So it was slow. And my recollection of why it was slow was that the federal government ordered vaccines to come uh, at the end of the first quarter of 2021. So, you know, we were slow in rolling it out. Uh, did you, what was your take on that? Well, my take on, on the, the vaccine program um, was that it was effective. So I looked at what the Public Health Agency of Canada, um, Health Canada and Public Service and Procurement Canada did, and we found that they worked well together to respond to the urgent and ever-evolving nature of the pandemic. The, the objective was to have sufficient number of vaccines so that the provinces and territories could vaccinate every Canadian that wanted to be vaccinated. Um, and by May of 2022, um, you know, that, that had been reached as 82% of those eligible um, received at least two doses and, and many were starting to have their boosters. But what we found was that the public health agency's efforts to minimize wastage were really unsuccessful. But, but let's look at the actual procurement, and, and I think it's important to take us back to 2020, as, as you were mentioning, to understand that there was a global race to figure out which vaccine company would be first to um, uh, to have a viable vaccine, which vaccines would be ultimately approved for use in Canada, and there was a lot of uncertainty there. And, and I think the government's approach of signing advanced purchase agreements with, with many vaccine companies was a prudent one in order to make sure that we had access to to the vaccines. Um, When it came to timing, they did wait for the vaccine task force um, here in Canada to make recommendations on which companies would be um, have a higher probability of having a viable vaccine. And, and that recommendation came from the vaccine task force in late June. And then the government of Canada signed um, its first agreement in late July to secure um, access to, to doses. Okay, well, uh, some of us think that they were uh, late getting it done and that many lives possibly could have been saved. But um, thank you very much uh, for uh, putting a lot of clarity on those findings. appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now let's bring in Conservative MP and finance critic Jasraj Singh Hallan, as well as Franco Terrazano, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Well, 
you've been hearing what uh, the Auditor General had to say, and what do you make, uh, uh, first of all, of those eye-popping numbers? Uh, let's begin with uh, MP Singh. Um, well, let's be clear here. The Auditor General's report yesterday made something clear that the Conservatives have been worrying, worrying about since 2020, and that's Liberals' wasteful spending due to lack of any checks and balances have contributed to uh, this cost of living crisis that we see today. And what, that, and what the Auditor General highlighted was that the, the same failed approach the Liberals took during the pandemic, they continue to take that same approach now and in any future programs they're going to introduce. So they, they haven't learned from their mistakes, and Canadians are on the hook for their continued failures. Okay. Uh, Franco, uh, what's your reaction? Oh, this is a huge sum of money. I mean, we're not talking about just a little bit of waste here. We're not talking about a little bit of waste because a program had to get rolled out the door very, very quickly. Sure, it did in the first couple months. But we're also talking about programs, some of them, that extended into May 2022, two years into the program. So you add up all of the suspicious payments. You add up all of the payments to ineligible Canadians. And we're looking at at least $32 billion, a huge sum of money. Now, what can $32 billion be used on? Well, to put that into context, that could build 30 hospitals across Canada, right? So the government completely failed to have guardrails in place. It looks like the CRA is is still not exactly sure uh, just who received ineligible payments. And really, this is a huge sum of money that can't go into benefiting Canadian taxpayers, like building more hospitals, hiring more nurses, or, of course, giving Canadians a break on uh, on taxation. Uh, okay. Uh, so I'd like to give the numbers again. And I think you flagged uh, one of the, the main explainers that we hear. And what a lot of people said was, Okay, a lot of money went to people who weren't supposed to get it, but the good news is the government got that money out the door very quickly and it prevented a lot of hardship and a lot of poverty and uh, they need to get some credit for that. So uh, audience, what do you think? Do you give them a pass or do you give them a pass on maybe some of it and maybe these numbers are just too big? Uh, to get a pass on, or do you maybe give them a pass on some people, uh, but perhaps not on businesses that were ineligible? So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'm talking to Franco Terrazano of uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and Jasraj Singh Hallen, who is the Conservative Party critic. Uh, so again, um, MP Hallen, wh- how do you respond to that argument that that really they deserve credit for getting the money out the door? Well, let's let, let's look at the numbers just on their own. Frank was absolutely right. This is a massive, massive number, and it's only at least thirty-two billion. That, uh, that the uh, Auditor General can even track. We've seen a trend. This is a liberal legacy that of wasteful spending that's put Canadians more and more into food banks, that's making one in five Canadians skip uh, meals today in Canada. They spent $110 billion before COVID even started. They spent a half a trillion dollars in, during COVID, 40% of which had nothing to do with covid and this includes waste that we've seen t- today and from yesterday's Auditor General's report. And we don't see an end in sight. What has this led to? It's led to more and more Canadians pushed to the brink, paychecks being stretched further than ever before, food inflation, gas inflation, housing inflation. Everything is feels like it's broken in Canada today. And the Liberals did not learn from their own mistakes. They will continue to make the same mistakes and one of the programs that, and uh, one thing that I hear from a lot of small business owners was uh, highlighted in the Auditor General's, General's report, where we've seen 190,000 people quit their jobs because CERB had disincentivized work. And this is still something that I hear from small business owners, that they still cannot recover because of the labor shortage. And we have a crisis in this country right now. 
And so the, the Liberal government will and did not learn from their previous mistakes. They continue to borrow and spend. And now we've seen another rate hike being taken by the, by the Bank of Canada, trying to fix the big, massive spending that this Liberal government has done. Well, uh, you know, it leaves some of us scratching our heads. We do have a labor shortage, but people can't be collecting CERB anymore. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that is definitely a question. And, and I just want to clarify that the 27.4 billion, the auditor general says should be investigated. It's not, uh, confirmed overpayments. So I guess we should make that clear. Franco, our, what our about... Party is, I'm sorry, I'll just add that our party has been clear. We agree with the Auditor General. There needs to be an investigation to figure out what happened, who got what sums of money that weren't supposed to get it, so that we can take a look at what needs to be done from there. And I hope the Liberals actually accept that as well and let an investigation happen. Canadians also need to know how much more money is it going to spend our Canadians on the hook for because of these failures and and figuring out how they're going to recoup the money. Uh, Franco, uh, that was my next question. What about the cost of recovering the money? Well, that's a good question. Um, but look, uh, before and there definitely has to be some analysis done there. Um, but here's the thing: like, here's just I just want to really nail home the point on the lack of guardrails that the federal government put in place. Okay, because if you look in the Auditor General report. 190,000 Canadians apparently quit their job, not because of COVID, but quit their job, and the government still gave them serve, serve, $1.6 billion. Okay, the government gave the CERB to 1,500 people in jail, $6.1 million. The government gave 700 people who don't live in Canada, serve, $3.3 million. And, you know, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, the government gave 400 people under the age of 15, the CERB, $2.2 million. And this might be the craziest one of all that really shows a lack of guardrails, but the government gave 391 dead people the CERB for a cost of $1.2 million. And here's another point that the Auditor General touched on. $15.5 billion the government gave through the wage subsidy to businesses where it's not clear that they actually met the eligibility criteria. So what's so tough to deal with here is that so many, so many Canadians tried to do the right thing during COVID-19. So many small businesses, think of that gym down the street, think of your favorite restaurant down the street, who were shut down, who were worried that their savings wouldn't keep the lights on. But now they have a higher tax burden because, one, the government didn't have the proper guardrails in place. The government created a huge mess, and now we have more debt to pay back. But, two... It looks like there may have been some people trying to game the system. So what do we do about it? Well, we have to make a distinction. For the people who really did their best to follow the rules, the government needs to be compassionate with them and need to give them as much time as possible to pay the money back. But for the people who tried to game the system, and this is on the CRA to figure out, the government has to get the money back. Well, um, one of the things that I do remember at the beginning, so at the beginning it was going to be Service Canada and employment insurance to cover this, and it became clear that they were completely incapable of getting that money out the door, and CRA could at least get the money out the door. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. And you know what? I just want to make another point that I think is really important here, is that it doesn't seem like the government is learning from this mistake. And here's why I say that. Because the government is continuing with the same, uh, quote-unquote, good faith, attestation process for future benefit programs, right? Uh, the rollout of the dental benefit program, the rollout of the housing subsidies. So I think this is another big concern. And I think taxpayers expect the government to at least learn its lesson first and put in proper guardrails in place for its future spending, by the way, that we don't have money for, uh, before it moves ahead with it. That's an interesting point. Uh, before we wrap things up, I'll take a call from Pat. Hi, Pat. All right, Libby. Uh, don't expect government to collect this money. What should be happening is all of these problem accounts should be put out in a contract which would allow the uh, private sector, which is motivated by profit, to collect this money and get a percentage of what they collect. 
there will be no motivation, absolutely no motivation at CRA to collect this money. Um, well, they know, collect back taxes all the time. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but, but there will be no motivation by these people because what, what mot- what uh, um, what uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What security do they have to realize on? Are they going to add it to your taxes? I guess they could do that, but a lot of these people might not even be paying taxes. So I would turn it over to the to the private sector to collect this money, and then we would see some. Of oh, it. I see another story coming about that RFP. Do you have any idea, Pat? Like what kind of percentage these collection agencies take? Because I, I have would, no idea. It but, might be hefty, and it might make it not worth it. Well, no, but what you would do is you put it out for a proposal, and uh, you know have people come in and say we will charge X. And, you know, your biggest issue is making sure you've got ethical people. <laughs> but but it, this is, it's so easy for government to spend other people's money. And then they don't care when they don't spend it properly. That's oh. the sad part. Okay, Pat. Thanks for that. Uh, okay. I'm looking at the clock. Time to wrap things up, giving you 20 seconds each, starting with MP Hallen. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And what we see is that The Liberals continued their failed approach highlighted by the Auditor General that's left Canadians on the hook again for their massive failures and their massive debts. They have not learned, and like Franco highlighted, they're using that same failed approach that the Auditor General said that needs to be fixed right away on current and future programs when we're looking at rental, dental, and housing. This failed approach keeps leaving Canadians more and more on the hook that's left them going into more and more food banks with one in five Canadians skipping meals. And this holiday season, we're also seeing one in five Canadians who will have to access charitable services. They need to rein in their spending and they need to cancel their failed inflationary carbon tax. Okay. (laughs) That covers the waterfront. Franco, last 20 seconds to you. Well, look, this isn't just a little bit of money, right? This is at least $32 in suspicious or in ineligible payments that went out at least $32 billion, right? What could we do for that money? That's 30 hospitals across Canada. Um, so it, it is really disappointing to see just a huge sum of money that went out the door, and it, this mess happened because there wasn't a proper guardrails in place. Okay, thank you both. Uh, MP Jasraj Singh-Hallen and Franco Terrazano. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, the National Institute on Aging issued a new report raising the alarm on levels, low levels of flu vaccination, and this, as we are uh, at the height of that triple threat, and now the focus may be shifting from children to older adults, we'll go, we're going to talk about that when we come back, and I'm asking the question, have you had your flu shot? 416 740 toll free 1866 740 4740 You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. Fight Back with Libby Schneider on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The National Institute on Aging is raising the alarm over what it calls stubbornly low flu shot vaccination rates among older people. And this comes as we are experiencing the so-called triple threat of COVID, respiratory syncytial virus, I hope I said that right, and influenza that's been pummeling the healthcare system. And while most of the focus has been on the crisis involving children, the numbers of older people requiring hospitalization has been going up right now. I'm joined by Dr. Prabhat Jha, an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health at U of T. Hi, Dr. Jha. Hi, Libby. Uh, so are you alarmed by this report? I am. It confirms what many of us had um, had feared through a, a survey they found that the levels of uh, actual vaccination in the elderly against flu is is quite low, and you would have thought that COVID would be a prompt for many people to get their vaccines for the flu, but in fact, that hasn't occurred. Um, So I am concerned. I see it uh, 
all around us, I think everyone um, can very much say that this flu season has been particularly bad, that we know many people that have been infected. And these aren't just children, which have been getting the headline from both RSV and from flu, but also the elderly. And we also know, um, and in my family this happened, including in me, that what does what is increasingly reported is you get the flu, but on top of it, you get a bacterial infection that uh, can cause you to have um, congested lungs and be um, have a very uncomfortable cough or even a congested sinus. So uh, this is of worry. We, we are definitely in a tridemic that's causing lots of misery in the population and leading to uh, real pressures on our health system. Is part of it that uh, the during COVID, the flu seasons turned out to be very mild. I remember doing items uh, warning people the flu season's coming and be really bad, and it wasn't bad at all. I think that's part of it, that what uh, we're basically sequestered away and you know, not having much social contact, so we didn't pick up much RSV and, and influenza. Um, the other part of it is we know for the flu, the, for the influenza, it, it varies by strain or by year. And in some years, you get a particularly bad strain that infects a lot of people. And the vaccines that are based on last year's strains, that's how the flu shot works, because what happens is um, labs from around 80 places in the world share last year's flu samples, and then they come up with a vaccine that combines kind of targets against those, one for the south of the world and one for the north of the world. And um, sometimes those work really well against the current circulating strains, but sometimes they work less effectively. But we know that uh, if you keep up your vaccines, keep up your influenza vaccines every year, over time, you develop a repertoire of immunity against the flu. So you're you're better off getting annual flu shots because although it's a bit hit and miss for that particular flu season, over time, you're far more protected than if you're not vaccinated regularly. Now, I was a little confused by some of the numbers that I saw in this because it looked to me like the uptake of flu shots among the older population was actually the, the same as it was, or, uh, but it didn't meet up to public health targets. That's right. And the, I think the public health targets are important, and um, we haven't done a good enough job, as the report points out, of having a national strategy that would say, well, you know, you really want let's say 70% coverage in particular age groups, and you want it early in the flu season. So unlike for COVID, where there was a real impetus saying, you know, a wave is coming, you better get vaccinated to minimize the risks of that wave. For the flu, we haven't had that same kind of messaging and support. Um, I think uh, trying to learn from the lessons of COVID vaccines, like including having mobile clinics in places that are um, harder for, for particularly for seniors to, to reach. So having mobile vaccines go to, or mobile clinics go to um, long-term care homes or go to uh, residences where there's large numbers of seniors it is true that at least in Ontario, you can just hop over to one of the pharmacies and get a vaccine, but that's still a passive system. You still rely on people saying, oh, I better get my flu shot and I better go. So I think we need some more systematic reminders, reminders from GPs, more community messaging about getting your flu shot uh, to try to raise the rates, particularly in the elderly. So what is the target? So in fact, uh, is the older population or is 70% getting vaccinated for the flu? I think the ideal target uh, would be 80% or more. Um, the, the target is really somewhat of an arbitrary one. You want to say you want as many people vaccinated. Ideally, you'd want it 100%, but we won't get there. And flu is a little bit different in that if you've 
even with high rates of vaccination, um, particularly in the elderly, you won't necessarily decrease a lot of transmission in the community because the transmission tends to be driven by younger kids um, that uh, you know basically are passing the virus in schools and other settings. But as a matter of protection against getting seriously sick or being hospitalized, and as mentioned, over not one year, but over several years, having the vaccine on board does mean you build up your immunity and you're less likely to get sick. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons this flu season has been bad, because uh, we have both a nasty virus, a nasty strain, and secondly, that uh, many people last year thought, well, I don't need to. I'm isolated. I, I won't need to get the flu shot. Well, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I think, again, because the last few flu seasons were not that bad, uh, and I think people are forgetting how serious the flu can be. I, I want to throw the question out there again to our audience. Uh, have you had your flu shot? And if not, why not? And are you going to? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, is there any difference, doctor, in the symptoms of RSV and influenza? And uh, will the flu shot protect you against RSV? If it's a virus, probably not. I don't know. No, it uh, it doesn't. But uh, it's very hard to tell apart um, RSV versus um, influenza. RSV can mostly lead to more symptoms that really are in your in your respiratory. The flu can give you more muscle aches and uh, kind of general discomfort. <laughs> but, oh, are you all right? Hard. Oh, I'm fine. In fact, we, um, yeah, I'm I'm living proof that I delayed getting my flu shot because I had travel coming up to uh, to Africa and uh, on the way I've managed to pick up the flu. So oh, and you know it's the I'm, flu and not RSV? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the flu given what the symptoms I'm having. So um but it's hard to tease these two apart and uh it is true that if you get overall your immunity boosts uh including getting um your seasonal flu shots, you're more likely to have uh, uh, a little less severity of uh, of other infections generally. So that's a general immune boost. But the flu vaccine won't work against RSV. There's active research on coming up with an RSV vaccine using some of the technologies that were developed for uh, for COVID. So I think in the future, that's promising. But right now, it's all we got is the flu shot. All we have is the flu shot. And, and do you think there's any confusion out there about uh, a COVID vaccine protecting uh, against the flu? There shouldn't be. Um, again, that's part of the messaging that uh, I think could be done better is if you want to protect yourself against the uh, the infections, you need vaccines for each. So I think that could be part of the me messaging uh, that's better. Well, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, Dr. Ja is uh, going to continue with us. And, and, and thanks for talking to us while you're obviously uh, under the weather. And we'll also be joined by Dr. Allison McGeer and people out there. Uh, let us know. Have you had your flu shot? If yes, why yes? If not, why not? Uh, we want to know. And uh, are you concerned about this so-called triple threat? 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be back after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we are talking about 
the flu and flu shots and the National Institute on Aging has raised the alarm over what it calls stubbornly low flu shot vaccination rates among older people. And, you know, not just among older people, because among younger people, too, and uh, they can still carry the virus and they can still spread it. We've been talking to Dr. Prabhat Jha, and now I'd like to welcome Dr. Allison McGeer. Thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure. So uh, are you alarmed by this as well? Well, unfortunately, it's predictable. But there's just no question that if we could get more adults, particularly older adults, to be willing to get their flu shot every year, that that would save lives and and take pressure off the hospital system. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you think we should do that? Uh, The National Institute of Aging is out with a new report saying that uh, the pandemic uh, actually has taught us things about improving the uptake. The pandemic's taught us lots of things, but unfortunately, I, I think at the moment, it's also made us, uh, uh, the whole population, a bit tired of getting needles and vaccines. And so I think with flu vaccines this year, we're seeing that people have said, well, there hasn't been flu around for a while. And we know when there's a quiet flu year in any given year, we know that the next year, people aren't thinking about it as much and they tend not to get their flu vaccine. So that's a piece of what's happening. And then I think people are kind of tired of COVID vaccines and they're saying, ah, I don't want to get any more shots. And you know, I, I I think we are a little bit stuck on persuading people that this is just, you know, you drop into your pharmacy to pick something up, you should get your flu shot and you should put it on your list to do every year. It's not that big a deal. Um, and it's a really important disease to prevent. You know, you just alluded to something that I have heard from quite a few people. They say, uh, I'm becoming a pincushion. I'm getting so many vaccines that can't be good for me. And I sort of say, well, what difference does it make? You know, it, yeah, it makes no difference at all. Pe- people do think somehow that if you're exposed to an antigen needle, that's different. But we, all of us, respond to literally thousands of antigens every day, stuff that touches us, stuff that we breathe in, things we eat. Um, so vaccines actually add very little. If you think about the flu vaccine and the and the COVID vaccines, they contain a very small number of proteins. So it's actually not relative to everything else a significant stimulus at all. I mean, you know, which is not, I can understand none of us are that keen on getting needles, you know, but really it's not, if you you think about it, lots of people take insulin every day for their diabetes, right? It, it, there's, there shouldn't be anything, you know, new or different or worrisome about, um, even getting, you know, four or five COVID boosters. I, I, it's not common for what we do with vaccines, but, you know, pandemics aren't common either. So we're not going to respond to them in the same way. Uh, Dr. Zai, is that something you've encountered? People saying, I've had so many, it can't be good enough already? I think it's, as uh, Allison has pointed out, fatigue with uh, with vaccinations. But vaccinations absolutely save lives. And um, the Having the flu shot, you have to remember flu around the world um, causes about 300,000 deaths a year in routine times. So it's it's not by any means a, a trivial killer. I think uh, the, the sense is, well, look, we were okay in the last couple of years, so I don't need it. And that also leads to um, people thinking, well, maybe I'll just hold off one year. My hope is that because this flu season, I think, has been particularly bad, it will spur people to get at least the vaccination earlier, the better in the flu season, or uh, at least it'll be a spur, a reminder for next year that uh, when the flu vaccine is introduced, that they get it as early as possible. So, but, but you need this in public health. You need to constantly remind and cajole people to do what is in their own interest, uh, even if they're tired about doing the right things. I, I want to give out some of the usual numbers, and it is interesting, and people, I still want to hear from you about whether you've had your flu shot. And uh, in previous years, pre-pandemic, when we used to start talking about flu shots 
and the flu, uh, our lines would light, light up. So <laughs> maybe you're right about fatigue. The number is 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And here are some of non-COVID numbers about the impact of the flu on older adults. So estimated 175,000 emergency visits in Canada annually, 12,200 hospitalizations and 3,500 deaths, which means it's one of the top causes of death. And uh, therefore, a lot of people, even if it doesn't kill them, it robs them of their independence because uh, it, they get very sick. They can't go back to their homes after that. Uh, and hence, you know, we always talk about long-term care a lot. So the risks are very real uh, if you're in a group like older people who are vulnerable. Uh, and I guess people have been downplaying that, Dr. McGeer. Well, I think, you know, the the problem with influenza is that a very large number of people get it every year and most of them are okay. And that lulls you into a false sense of security about it. You know, you knew some people last year who had flu and they were sick for a few days and then they got better and you think, well, okay, it's not so bad. And, and you forget that when so many people get the infection, it doesn't take a large number with serious complications to make it an important risk. You know, so, so, just because flu is so common, we tend to get casual about it uh, and forget. But but you're right. And until we had COVID, um, everybody was more likely to die of influenza than any other infectious disease. Uh, and so it it it's really important to remember that and to internalize it and to say to yourself, you know, I know it doesn't feel like that much, but it really is important. I need to get my flu shot. Okay, let's take a call from Rachel in Brampton. Hello, Rachel. Hi, uh, thank you, Libby. Uh, yes, definitely. I had I had my flu shot right away. I, you know, two weeks. I don't know, a couple of days later, I got COVID, and you know, I had a. I am a rheumatoid arthritis patient, so I took all the vaccine. But you know, so because of that, I guess I am. I didn't. I, I guess I wasn't serious. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay. So my, definitely. Okay. Well, that's good. How about Darlene in Etobicoke? Hello, Darlene. Hello, Libby. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hello. I'm sorry. Yes, you're on the air. Go ahead. Oh, yes. No, I just wanted to say um, I'm a relatively healthy 71-year-old. I got my flu shot right away as well as my fifth uh, 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 COVID shot, and I was... Um, to go on a cruise, and I came down with COVID. Uh, had to cancel my cruise. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very disappointing, but I'm in my third week with COVID. Um, wow. And have had, uh, I'm starting to get better now, but still have a lot of uh, congestion. Um, and i just like to say that, uh, you know, if I hadn't had the flu shot and the um the fifth uh, COVID shot, I think I would have been so much sicker. I can only imagine how how ill I would have felt, um, you know, because this has been a bad run as it is. And, um, yeah, by all means, get that flu shot and the COVID boosters. Um, Darlene, because- thank you very much for sharing that. And, and I hope that people are listening because, uh, you know, even – with the precautions it doesn't mean that you know you're you're sick enough already and and uh, it's unfortunate that you had to cancel your cruise but uh you know th- thank you for telling people about what happened to you we appreciate well, that yes and and like i said i'm relatively uh healthy uh, you know no pre-existing conditions or anything but uh, uh you know this this is uh, <clears throat> been a, it's been a very hard um, battle and um, also I'm a first time caller. And oh wait, I, wait! I very much Welcome. <laughs> I very much enjoy your show, Olivia. Thanks for taking my call. Okay, thanks, and take care and get well soon. Yes, happy holidays. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. 
so, uh, doctors, uh, what's your reaction to what you heard from our last caller? Well, Allison, go ahead. I just, I'm very, I'm very glad she's getting better. And I, and, and I, you know, I think one of the hard things when you get COVID is you just sort of so annoyed about not feeling well. And, and, and when you feel miserable, many of us, I think, forget how much worse it would have been if we hadn't had the vaccine. So I think it's really, I'm, I'm really grateful to her for her ability to see that the, the change that has happened because of vaccines, you know, we, COVID was a much, much worse disease to have before we were all vaccinated. And, but as she points out, it's still a miserable disease. And so, so, so the second piece of the message is when you go to get your flu shot this year, make sure you get your COVID booster at the same time. You can get both vaccines at the same time. No reason why not. Um, so really would help both yourself getting the shots and our, our healthcare system uh, for the next few months. If everybody, when they stopped in their drugstore in the next few days, got themselves a flu shot and a COVID booster. Hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, and, and Dr. Ja, I mean, it's possible that people could get COVID and flu at the same time, and that would be a hellish nightmare. It certainly is. So it's all the more reason to, as, uh, as Allison has pointed out, to make sure you get up to date on both. And we have to remember that, okay, we've got um, a, a, a one of the peaks of the flu season now, but we'll get another one in January or so. So even if you think, oh, well, uh, it's not like you've missed the flu season, you can still get it early as possible is the best. And I think what we should be doing is having more pharmacies, more GPs, and more of our public health messages saying, take two, go go for a two-for-one. When you go, get both, and really try to push that. Uh, we haven't done that. We haven't had the large-scale marketing or public announcements try to really encourage people to get both. And it, it's not, It's frankly, uh, uh, it's not that easy to book that online. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which so is a problem. Can, yeah. That's right. It's a problem. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're just about out of time. Uh, what would you like to leave us with? 20 seconds, Dr. McGeer? Yeah, you, you know it's going to be for me. Uh, wash your hands, get your flu shot, get your COVID vaccine, stay home when you're sick, please, and enjoy the holidays. And Dr. Ja, last 20 nothing, seconds to you. Nothing to add. Exactly right. Getting um, the the vaccines, and I would add, if you're in an indoor closed place on a public transport, wear a mask. I do. Okay, and uh, you take care, Doctor Sean. Get well soon. Thank you both very much. Bye bye. Take care, Libby. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, uh, that is all the time we have for today. Jane Brown will be in the chair tomorrow. I'll be back for free for all Friday, and I want to hear from you then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.